0: Page 654 in your pew Bible, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 4. Page 654. Now, leadership—leadership is big business in America today. Uh, Leadership gurus have churned out a host of. Books and seminars and CDs and training materials, so that if you're a leader in business or in some other realm, uh, you'll be equipped to lead your organization. You you know, one instance among many we could multiply Uh, think of Jim Collins' uh, book, Good to Great. Uh, Maybe some of you have read that book, where he studied companies that were good and then became great. And he looked at the characteristics that were common to each of those corporations. And he talked about the leadership requirements necessary to bring your uh, organization from good to great. But you know, it's not just sort of a secular business kind of thing. Uh, This has really exploded in the evangelical church in the last uh, 10, 15 years. I think of Bill Hybels, for instance, at Willow Creek Community Church out in Chicago. And uh, every August, he does now a leadership summit where he has evangelical leaders, business leaders, political leaders come and talk about leadership. Some of them are Christians, some of them aren't, but they talk about leadership trends. And, and then this conference, where thousands of people come, is then beamed out all over the country, and other people come and, and to these little satellite venues, and they hear the same uh, speakers and presenters. Or perhaps the, the head guru of evangelical leadership gurus is uh, a guy named John Maxwell. And he wrote a book, for instance, called The 21 uh, Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I'm not going to read to you all the laws, but let me just give you some examples. Like the law of navigation. It says anyone can steer the ship, but it takes a leader to chart the course. And he writes about that for a chapter. Uh, The law of the inner circle. A leader's potential is determined by those closest to him. Or the law of buy-in. People buy into the leader and then the vision. And he goes on and and describes these different characteristics. And you know, it's, it's helpful stuff. Uh, if, if you've read this kind of leadership stuff, it really can sharpen your ability to lead and make you more effective in uh, guiding and influencing others. But what I find interesting is that we look at the book of Proverbs, which talks about so many issues in life. And we look in Proverbs and we find the theme of leadership in Proverbs. We find there's a characteristic or an aspect of leadership that just rises to the surface of the text. That you, you can't miss it. It's just everywhere, it seems, when leadership and authority are talked about. And what's interesting to me is it's a characteristic of leadership that when you read a lot of the leadership literature, you don't see it that often. Or it's kind of one among a list of 25, but it's not focused on and highlighted the same way it is in the book of Proverbs. And when you look at Proverbs, what you find is that above all else, God calls leaders to be people who uphold justice that justice is perhaps the most important virtue or calling of those in leadership. And here it is in our text. Look at chapter 29, verse 4. It says, By justice, a king gives a country stability, but one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. So it's justice that gives stability, that makes a nation go from good to great, as it were. Uh, Justice is that important characteristic. Or, Or look at chapter 16, verse 10. Chapter 16, verse 10. It says, The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth should not betray justice. Kings must be marked by a commitment to justice. Or so verse 12. Kings detest wrongdoing, for a throne is established through righteousness. So righteousness and justice are very closely tied Uh, Perhaps that helps us to define, I keep saying the word justice. What do I mean by that? Maybe we should define that word. What I see justice means in the scriptures is justice is when we use what power or leverage we have to make sure that what is right is lifted up and protected and what is wrong is resisted. So a just leader or a just king or a just CEO or a just whatever leadership role you have is a person who uses their influence to make sure that what's right is protected and what's wrong or sinful or corrupt is resisted and put down. Uh, so, uh, let me give you a great for instance of this. Look at chapter 21 again in Proverbs. Verse 15. On page 646, Proverbs 21:15 It says, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So when justice is being done, righteousness is upheld, wrong is resisted, it makes sense. Those who are trying to do what God wants, they're going to be like, yeah, awesome. Righteousness is prevailing. And those who aren't are going to be terrified that they're going to be caught and punished because uh, what is wrong is being resisted in the society. Uh, Or the same idea, just from the negative perspective, look at chapter 17. Just a few more verses here. Chapter 17, verse 15. Verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. When we flip justice on its head and the righteous are condemned and the wicked are acquitted, then, you know, God hates that because God is a God of justice. Or look just one more, chapter 17, verse 26. It is not good to punish an innocent man. That's bad. Or to flog officials for their integrity. So justice is using our leadership. Influence, authority, power, whatever you want to put it, to work so that in our organization or our community or nation, we are upholding what is right and resisting what is displeasing to God, what's wrong or sinful or corrupt. Um, and we all uh, you know, have areas in which God calls us to do this. Uh, not probably not many of us here are kings i 'm guessing maybe some of us think we 're kings. Maybe we act like kings uh, or people think we act like kings, but probably not many of us are kings and yet I think these principles really do apply for all kinds of leadership roles. Some of you are leaders in the business world you know you you 're a, a project manager or you 're over a division or you have some people working for you or you 're a small business owner and you have two employees, and so you have some kind of Authority. Maybe you're an executive and you oversee hundreds of people. And so you make decisions that powerfully impact the real lives and financial situations of people. And so there's a calling upon those in the business world to act justly. You know, in the business world, so often the bottom line is the bottom line. God's got a different bottom line. It's right and wrong. And for, from God's perspective, sometimes we have to sacrifice profitability to some degree, in order to do the right thing, that doing the right thing is far more important to God than making the extra percentage, <clears throat> because we're called to be just. You know, how do you how do you deal with these issues justly as as a business person? I don't know. It's going kind to of throw it out there to you as a challenge. How do you fire somebody in a Christian way? And sometimes you have to do that in the business world. Cuts have to be made. Difficult decisions are done. But is it possible to let people go and to lay people off in a way that's Godly and righteous and honors God? I mean, these are really the challenging questions where we take this faith we're talking about on Sunday morning and bring it to bear in the public spheres where we work. Uh, But there's all kinds of leadership responsibilities. Some of you are teachers, teachers make decisions every day, they have to judge. Judgment calls every day about how to respond to kids in different situations and needs. And so to act fairly as a teacher is a difficult thing. Some of you are in the healthcare professions, uh, mental health care, physical health care, where you write things on pieces of paper and charts that can dramatically affect people's lives. And how do, we, how do you be just and right in some of the managed care situations that we face today? These are the challenges of the Christian life played out in the real world. Um, those of us in the church who are leaders, pastors, elders, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, must maintain justice in the church. Uh, and, and perhaps one of the hardest places to do justice is, you know, as a parent. <laughs> There's a leadership role. Uh, you know, I, I think being a pastor is pretty, pretty easy compared to being a parent. It's, it's slightly harder being a parent, I've found, uh, because, you know, the, the, the questions that come at you, the situations. We had a justice issue the other night. We were driving back from somewhere, and it was late. And we're gonna go home. We're gonna watch the Olympics and go to bed. And, uh, and it kind of was getting really loud in the car. And you know, it finally got to that point where my wife and I were like, "Okay, everyone, just be quiet for a while. We just need some quiet." And so everyone piped down. And of course, like you know, three minutes later, the noise starts coming up again and starting getting louder and louder. And we're like, "We told you all to be quiet." So you know what? When we get home, no Olympics. You're going straight to bed. Sorry, that's how it is. And you know, everyone got quiet again. And then, and then in the back, you know, we hear, like, one lone voice kind of whimpering. And, and at this point, I was, like, doing the whole Mad Dad routine, you know, so I was like, what is it, you know? And the voice says, I wasn't making noise the second time. You know? <laughs> so you're like, <sighs> so you, you start rewinding the tape, you start replaying the, your, the video, you're like... I think you're right. I, I think that's accurate. And so, you know, you have to adjust what you said. So, so you go from being like, nobody's watching the Olympics, to like, okay, you can, but you can't. And I don't know, maybe that's easy for you. Maybe it's just my pride or something. I have a hard time reversing decisions. When I speak an edict, you know, I expect it to stand. Uh, so it's hard for me to, like, backpedal and, and do the right thing. It would have just been easy to be like, well, you know, I'm sure you did something today that you deserve not to watch the Olympics. And I didn't see it, and so it's there. You know? but, but to be just and fair, oh, it's, it's exhausting. You know. And, and at some point, your, your kids come to realize that mom and dad are not perfectly just and fair, that they make failures. You, you have that Wizard of Oz moment. You know in the Wizard of Oz where there's a great and powerful Oz and then Toto pulls the little curtain back and they all see that it's just some guy pulling levers. Like at some point, kids reach have a Wizard of Oz moment where they're like, oh... My parents aren't the great and powerful Oz. They're just people pulling levers. And, and so they start to see that. So justice is a hard thing to carry out. What about those of you who are in leadership roles, but you don't have a title? You're not a VP or you don't have a little thing on your desk that gives your job title. You're just an influential person. You know What, about, what if you're the kid at school that a lot of other kids take their cues from? That's a leadership role. And, and how do we uphold justice? How do we... Use the influence God has given us to make sure that we do what is right and we stand for what's right and we resist what is wrong. And here's the bottom line, people. God is just. Justice is the foundation of God's throne. And so really what we're talking about here is emulating the character of God in his leadership of the universe. God is perfectly just and fair and righteous. So let's think about this a little more specifically. If we're called to justice in leadership, if that's one of the primary characteristics of those to whom God has ceded some authority in all the various avenues of life in which we live, um, the question is, how practically do we go about being just? Does it have a little more specificity to it? And in fact, it does. When you look at Proverbs and start examining justice more and more, what you find is that justice texts in the Scripture tend to sort of fall into one or two categories. There's sort of two dominant themes that emerge out of the scriptures that tell us what it means to do justice and to uh, t- to stand and live the way God wants and lead the way God wants. And what's interesting is when you look at these two themes, at first blush, they appear to be contradictory. I was really wrestling with this week because I'd read certain texts, I'd be like, okay, so justice is this. Then I'd read other texts and I'd be like, No, justice is that. And then I look at this and that, and I say, this and that don't agree very well. They seem to be opposite things. There's a a tension and almost uh, a a paradox within the nature of true justice in the Bible. So let's think a little more specifically about what it looks like to do justice. And let's look at each of these two, apparently, it seems, contradictory kind of uh, poles that we find in the Scripture. And the first is this. At one end of the spectrum, we find that justice in the Bible has to be impartial. That to be just people, to be fair people, we have to be uh, fair and impartial and we can't play favorites or give way to prejudices and bigotries and preferences. Uh, So, for instance, look at Proverbs chapter 24. This impartiality that we're supposed to have. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 23 to 25. It says, these also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judging is not good. There it is. If you're judging, if you're using your leadership to affect things and make decisions, showing partiality is bad. It goes on to say, whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, peoples will curse him and nations denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come upon them. Or if you look at uh, chapter 18, verse 5, you find the same theme. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the innocent of justice. It says, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. It says in Leviticus 19.15 so blatantly, Do not pervert justice. And then it goes on to say what that means. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't let their economic status, one way or the other, affect how the decision is going to turn out. It made me think of the statue of Lady Justice. Have you seen, you've seen this statue of Lady Justice? She, you know, it's this woman standing there, and in some versions of the statue, she has three items. Uh, you, you know, the three items. One is a sword. She's holding a double-edged sword, the sword of judgment, in her hand. In her other hand, she's holding scales, right, the, the, kind of the balance there, and she's holding it out. And what's the third thing she has? A blindfold right? And so that is the blindfold of impartiality. I'm not looking at the kind of person who's standing before me. I'm simply basing this on the evidence and whatever the facts are, whatever is right and wrong, that's what will determine the way I use the sword of of justice. And so that impartiality is just a critical aspect of uh, true justice. Uh, When I think of impartiality, I thought of a story from our own nation's history from the days of the revolution uh, and John Adams, you know, was one of our patriots from here and Massachusetts. He was a Massachusetts man. And uh, he, he engaged in a great act of impartiality uh, during the Boston Massacre. Uh, you know the Boston Massacre, March 5th, 1770. It was a, sort of a cold night and the crowds were being unruly and they were harassing the British soldiers. And, and the crowds got larger and larger and the tension started building. And, and they started throwing things at the British soldiers. and They're trying to get the British soldiers to flinch and do something so they could have an excuse to have a huge fight or something. And so you had the colonists kind of inciting the British and all this bad blood. And something happened and someone yelled fire. And the next thing you know, the the soldiers discharged their uh, muskets and it killed five Bostonians and injured a number of others. And so these soldiers were arrested and they were put in jail and they had to, you know, have a trial. The problem was there was not one lawyer in Boston who wanted to represent them. Because no one, you know, either they didn't like the the British there or they thought, you know, if I represent these guys, uh, my career is done. Everyone in Boston is going to hate me. And so at last they came to John Adams, a patriot, you know, not a a loyalist, a patriot. And yet he said, for the sake of impartiality and fairness, I will represent these men. Because he knew that that if America was going to cry out against the injustice of the crown but then not practice justice on its own shores. It was undercutting the very kind of society it was seeking to build. And so he took their case and he won. A bunch of them got acquitted. A few of them got a a few charges. But, you know, he, he was a guy who stood for integrity and for impartiality. And so it's really important that we do that in leadership roles. And the fact is we all have biases. We all have... Preferences. We can't even help it. It's just part of who we are. Maybe it's the way your parents raised you. Maybe it's the town you grew up in, and that's how people were in that town. Maybe it's certain life experiences you had that have colored your viewpoint towards certain types of people. But we all have these biases, you know? And we have to acknowledge those and in leadership actively overcome those so that we'll be impartial and fair to those around us. So that you'll be a fair teacher, a fair coach. An impartial journalist. Uh, an objective judge who goes by the facts of the case and not based upon people and how we see them. Uh, because we all have like I said different preferences. For some of us, uh, you know, race may affect us or ethnicity. For some of us, it's gender. For some, it's rich and poor. Some people just have personalities that annoy us, you know. It's just some people who are annoying to, to you. And so you just don't like that person. And as a leader, you may be tempted to kind of ignore them or not treat them the same way as you treat the guy with whom you feel like you just click and you can hang out with that person. And so you have to overcome all of those biases to lead. We have to do it as elders in the church. Uh, uh, You know, the pastors and elders of South Shore Baptist Church have to be sure that they love and care for every member of the church. You know, the, the elder government of the church is not a representative government. It's not like... You know, people from Braintree get a Braintree elder. And people from Hingham get a Hingham elder. And, the, you know, the rich people have a rich elder and the poor people have a poor elder. And the old people have an old elder and the young people have a young elder. And then all these elders come and represent their constituencies in the church. That's not how it's supposed to work. It, when you become an elder or a pastor, you have to ask yourself, can I love and shepherd every member of this congregation? And if you can't, you need to take a year off and work that out in your heart until you can because that's the job, is to be impartial and fair and to love all the members of uh, of the church and the congregation. But it's not even those of us in leadership. It's it's all of us in the church. To be a healthy, healthy church family, we have to put our biases and natural prejudices aside. Uh, look at this. Put a bookmark here in Proverbs. We'll come right back. Turn to the New Testament book of James. Near the back of the Bible. James chapter 2. James, that wonderful... Two by four upside the head. Book of the New Testament. That just uh, does not pull punches. Page 1196. James actually is very proverbial. If you read through James, it reads like Proverbs in a lot of ways. There's a lot of similarities. But James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Page 1196. James says, My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges With evil thoughts, so even if we don't have an official job in the church, we have our hearts. And to be the body of Christ, we have to be impartial and care for people no matter who they are. You know, how well do we know ourselves? Do you know the kind of person who, if they walked through the door, you'd be attracted to or repelled by? Right? If one person came through the door and they like had the Harley Davidson suit on, you know, with the leather and they had chains and, you know, the wallet chain hanging down and big boots and, you know, the, the whole Harley look. And, and right after him came another guy through the door who had on a bow tie, tweed jacket with, you know, the leather elbow pads and the, the you know, polished shoes and really dapper looking person. You know, w- which one would you be drawn toward? And probably for some of us, it might be one or the other. We might say, oh, I could talk to that person. Or the other one, like, oh, hmm, you know, look at that guy. But, but we just have these natural... Uh, instincts, And so as people in the body of Christ, we have to overcome these things and practice the kind of impartiality and fairness that God practices toward us. Because this is, again, the bottom line is that God is fair and God is impartial. And someday there will be a day of judgment where we will stand before God and be judged for our lives. And on that day, it won't matter where I went to school it will not matter how much money I made. It will not matter what my family lineage is or what my last name is. Those things won't affect me. I'll have to stand before God and answer for my life and the way I've lived it, which for me is, you know, a scary prospect. I don't have a good case. None of us do. We're sinful people. We're going to stand before God, and He is going to judge us fairly. And unlike Lady Liberty, who's, or Lady uh, Justice, who's got to wear the eye band. The blindfold. Lord Jesus doesn't need a blindfold. He sees things purely and perfectly. His eyes are like burning fire. That, that's an image of His justice and His holiness. And He will judge us fairly. It's a terrifying prospect. This is what we're facing. And so, like Christ, we have to be people who judge impartially and fairly as we exert leadership. So, that's one part of justice. If we're going to be people who uphold what is right and resist what is wrong then part of that means impartiality. But as I said just quickly, there's another aspect of justice that at first blush seems to contradict the first one, seems to be at odds, seems to be going in an opposite direction. So if the first part of justice is impartiality, the second scriptural aspect of justice is that we actively fight for and defend and look out for the needs of those who are poor, weak, sick, marginalized, and unable to speak for themselves. So it requires simultaneously an impartiality and a kind of partiality that I've got to put the blindfold on and then I've got to peek out from underneath it. It seems to be what it's saying. Look with me. At, uh, go back to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7. That the justice God is talking about both requires a fairness that doesn't care whether someone is rich or poor, but also a concern for the poor and the outcast and those who cannot speak for themselves. Look at chapter 29, verse 7. It says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. They, they care about it. They think about it. You know, they're, they're thinking like, we've got to make sure over here, we've got to keep an eye on the poor to make sure we're providing justice for them. So there's a compassion and a, a proactive concern that's baked into it. Or look at chapter 31, verses 8 to 9. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8. Speak up. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. So to judge fairly, I have to speak up for those who can't. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And You look outside of the Proverbs, and this is all through the prophetic literature. I don't have time to take you through a, a tiptoe through the... The pages here and look at the different texts. Let me just read you one. Isaiah chapter 1. God says, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So to be a just person, I must be impartial, no respecter of persons, who also takes an active concern to be sure that the needs of those who can't speak up are being defended. And I I don't just sit back and hope it happens. I proactively stand in the gap for them and speak for them. It's really interesting. Huh? And as so I was just wrestling with this interesting scriptural tension uh, all week as I was thinking about it. And what I found as I looked into my own heart is I'm really comfortable with the first part of justice. I find that first part, I'm cool with that. You know, you get what you deserve. You blew it. Sorry, that's your problem. <laughs> I can do that part. That just seems normal. Uh, but you know what? It always seems normal when you're well off, when you're well-educated, when you're well-fed, when you're well-situated in society, when you're physically well, when you're mentally well. When you're well and everything is fine, it's easy to say, hey, those people got problems. They should make different choices. That's justice. That's fair. Right? Right? And yet, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ who is justice and fairness. Where did He spend His time and energies? He was with the poor, the marginalized, the lepers, the demoniacs. He was with those who were ostracized because they got a disease they couldn't help. He was with those who were ostracized because they had made really terrible, sinful choices and were kind of getting what they deserved. But he went among them, not justifying lifestyles necessarily, but loving them and seeking to bring them back to God so that they could find God's compassion and mercy. And so Jesus, the just, was also Jesus among the poor and distressed. And... Like I said, I find that challenging. My, my tendency is not to, to look in that direction when I'm comfortable. It's just say, hey, I'm fine, and that's their that's issue. Their that's their life. It's fair. It's just. But what about those who are in need? Who are the people around us in our society that we could open our eyes to? I, mean, I think we could probably, if we just broke up into groups and everyone came up with five examples of people who might not have the same ability to speak up for themselves in our society, we could probably just multiply examples. You know, in our society to really stand for your rights, you need a lawyer, but what happens if you're too poor to afford a lawyer, even if you're right? you may not be able to exert those rights that's those are the realities. Uh, what about those who are ill in our health care system today? What about people who are sick uh, or maybe who are mentally ill or who are elderly and And you know sometimes you have to advocate for care within the system because of the nature of managed care sometimes. but if you're mentally you're struggling with mental illness, or if you're elderly, you just don't know the system, you know, and you can't fight for yourself. You can just become sort of run over by the bureaucracy of things, unless someone stands up and says, "Hey, hey, 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 what about this person?" You know, that kind of advocacy. Um, what about the soldier who comes back from war, serving his country, and he's been wounded and he needs further care, but upon coming home. He doesn't get the hero's care or the hero's welcome and kind of gets the runaround by the bureaucracy and doesn't get the care that that soldier who sacrificed for us ought to deserve. Who speaks up for that soldier? Um, What about the kid at school who isn't funny, isn't cool, isn't attractive, isn't wealthy, isn't athletic, and isn't smart? It's kind of like the bland kid who sort of blends in with the wall. Who speaks up for that kid who stands up and makes sure that that kid just doesn't get run over by the crowd because everyone's got to have someone beneath them in the pecking order? Uh, we have to advocate for those. We have a responsibility. And what about advocating for those that class of citizens in America who are the most vulnerable, that class of citizens in America who are most uh, unable to speak for themselves, who are most unable to get a lawyer, who are most unable to stand up for their rights? What about the unborn in America? Do we advocate for them? The most helpless and unprotected. And so to stand for justice uh, means that I have to go beyond my spirituality simply being a private, personal thing that gives me some peace to motivating me to see those as God saw me in need and stepping in the gap for them in some way as God puts them in front of me. And I hope you understand, I'm not advocating any particular political solution this morning. I'm not advocating any particular party. Uh, in fact, I, you know, the most I'll say about politics is I think regular people can do a lot better job than the government. And so I'm, I'm challenging you as people and us as individuals, as a church, to see those needs in society and to see the people around us and instead of waiting for some program to do it, to step in as God puts people in our lives on a personal basis who need us to stand in the gap for them. That God's calling us to do this, not someone else or some program. Ultimately, as I thought about this and wrestled with it, I I see that these two poles perhaps are best reconciled in the person... Of Christ. That on the cross we see both the impartiality and the raw justice of getting what you deserve blended with the mercy and compassion for those who can't speak for themselves, and it seems to come together in the cross. That cross, which is the intersection of two perpendicular vectors, two lines that are going in different conflicting directions, yet they intersect at the cross. And so many of the mysteries of God that seem to be paradoxical find their resolution in the cross. And so at the cross, we see both the the impartial justice of God and the mercy of God brought together. Because on the cross, when Jesus was suffering, He was was receiving the unfiltered fury of God against evil. You know, people say, if God is real, why doesn't He take care of evil in the world? He is. And on the cross, He was punishing sin and evil in the person of Christ. But it was also the place of God's mercy because He was punishing Christ instead of me. I'm the one who deserves the wrath and judgment of God for my life. And yet Christ interposed. He came between me and the Father and He absorbed the wrath of God so that I might have the mercy of God flow to me. And so at the cross of Christ, we see both God's righteousness upheld and God's mercy poured out like a river, a mighty river, for the forgiveness of all who would come to him. Do you have Christ? Have you come to experience this amazing, just mercy, this impartial partiality that God has towards sinners? It's found in the cross. And may God help us as a congregation to be a just people who reflect his character and who, who live it out in the world, not just as a private spirituality, but that we learn how to take these things and bring them to bear. I'm not exactly how sure how it works, but may God guide us as we move forward, even this week, to be those who stand for justice, wherever we may be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that, that you would help us as Christians, as those who name the name of Jesus, to reflect both Christ's purity and fairness, but also Christ's concern for the poor, those who are in need, to stand up for their rights. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us, God, to be active and proactive for you. God, I pray that uh, if there's someone in our lives this week who needs us to stand for them, I pray, Lord, you would point them out specifically to us and that we would be active, that we would reflect your justice toward us. This Lord, help us to be a just church. Help us to be a church that stands for the truth but also reaches out in compassion. Lord, help us not just to be a truth church because truth without love really isn't true. And help us not just to be a church that talks about love all the time without truth because love without truth isn't very loving. God, help us to be a a church that preaches the word but in the love and compassion of Christ. And help us not just to preach it, Lord, but to live it. And We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.